So today we're going to be talking about the book, A Disease of the Public Mind, which is by Thomas Fleming. This book was recommended to me by Twitter user Martin, which uh, I think he's on here as Russian Cosmist, and he does a bunch of uh, very good translations of, I think, Nietzsche and Ernst Jungers. He's a very talented translator. You should check him out. I absolutely love this book. I think it's a book everyone should read, and the lessons from this book about the role that the the psychic economy and public sentiment, the public like meta sentiment and memes plays in the buildup to a conflict is extremely important to understand in diffusing a conflict. And that's that's one of the things that I think is uh, very important about this book is that Slimming actually takes the time and is like, hey, things could have gone a different way here. And so the Civil War the tensions that led to the Civil War had been going back for decades, even centuries. But there were all sorts of kind of forks in the road where if people had kind of taken a step back and thought about what they were doing, this huge, horrible conflict could have been avoided. It's obviously pretty relevant to today as, as rhetoric is ramping up, even though, you know, I don't think a civil war has any chance of happening. There are other bad things that have pretty good chances of happening that uh, I think people can avoid if they're smart. So this book has a pretty incredible thesis. The subtitle is a new view of the Civil War, and this was definitely a new view, at least for me, which is that Massachusetts caused the Civil War. And to go into a little bit more detail, uh, there were two diseases of the public mind, the first of which was the South's fear of some kind of bloody slave uprising, and the second was abolitionism, more importantly, the kind of Massachusetts strain of abolitionism, which was very uncompromising and... Uh, not very productive, which fed into each other and eventually led into this really horrible conflict that could have been avoided realistically and that a lot of people made active steps to avoid, but became unavoidable when these uh, diseases of the public mind took for a root. And John Brown's raid into Harvard's Ferry was probably like the final straw. And this book is great. If you hate John Brown, look, I hate John Brown. Um, you're going to get a lot of good. John Brown was, you know, this one of the worst people in American history material because it it really lays out the case for just how bad this guy was and just how uh, selfish and just insane his actions ultimately were. So the book opens with Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. You know, it covers probably hundreds of years of, of the institution of slavery, but starts at the end with Brown's raid. And just use a lot of details about the raid that even I wasn't familiar with. But pay American slavery uh, before the Civil War in a way that's like, it's kind of difficult for people to understand today just because they've been exposed to so much propaganda through media and the education system. You know, so John Brown, he had a bunch of failed business ventures. He was probably like bipolar or something like that. Like if he had trouble maintaining his focus on one particular thing and always ignoring details and, you know, had, had a bunch of like bankruptcies and, and just disastrous business ventures. He finally finds something that he's good at, which is the abolitionist cause. And, you know, if you ever met a bipolar person, they can be very charismatic when they're in a kind of manic period. And so he falls into that and he does some absolutely horrible stuff out in Kansas. I had an earlier episode, it's listed below on the bleeding Kansas prices. Brown actually kind of ticked off by just murdering several unarmed 
people who were suspected of, of supporting slavery, like they didn't even own slaves, but they maybe belonged to a pro-slavery party, but they're just like poor people out in the Kansas Territory, and there was debate over whether or not slavery would be allowed in the Kansas Territory. And so Brown would show up at people's houses at night and kill them and then, you know, hack up their bodies with swords. So he was like a, a serial killer or a really nasty guy. But because the abolitionist movement was going through this kind of huge surge in popularity, this serial killer became ex this like national celebrity and people were cheering him on. And so he manages to get the equivalent of several million dollars today from abolitionists to start this huge slave uprising in Virginia, which everyone knew was, I think, the most populous slave state and the richest slave state and one of the states that had, you know, the kind of the longest history with the institution of slavery. And so he going to attack the heart of slavery directly when he gets you know millions of dollars to do this from very wealthy northerners and the plan is just a disaster like it had no chance of success it was all kind of magical thinking like okay well I'll do this thing then thousands of people will show up to join me he didn't even bother to buy food for his raiders and you know it was, it was just like it was not like a real plan like i think that should be emphasized enough like he wasn't actually trying to start a slave uprising he was basically committing suicide by cop but really only he knew that he was committing suicide by cop and he wrote lots of other people, you know, escaped slaves, his own sons, into this plan, and they didn't know that he, he didn't have a plan to, like, get them out of there. So he was really, like, throwing their lives away, too, along with you know, throwing his own life away. And his choice of target, the city of Harper's Ferry, where there was a federal arsenal, you know, it kind of makes sense at first, where there's lots of guns at a federal arsenal, but if you, you know, and Again, but this is something I wasn't even aware of. I, the picture of the institution of slavery before the Civil War that you get in like movies or books or, you know, pretty much any discussion of it is just totally foreign to the actual reality of it during the time. So take Harper's Ferry. It's in Virginia, which is a slave state. And in the city of Harper's Ferry, there were 88 slaves and 1,000 free blacks. And uh, the ADA slaves were all like, relatively well-treated house slaves. And so this is a, an, an area of Virginia, and you know, it's pretty wealthy. It's got this like industrial facility where the institution of slavery was like being phased out peacefully. And so th you know, that's pretty foreign. People like to claim that there needed to be some big bloody war, but that didn't happen in most places that ended slavery. And, and so for Upper Spirit, it's like a you know, kind of a success story, right? People are being freed. There isn't some kind of horrible massacre. Everyone's kind of, you know, everyone gets jobs and kind of like, you know, works together. And there are just other details of the raid that paint this picture that is, is totally foreign to how people today understand that period. So the first guy that Brown's raiders shot was a free black man who worked for the railroad company. And, you know, he uh, Brown's men take over a railroad junction and they start shooting at people who try to pass by. This black guy goes up to see what the commotion is and he sees all these guys with guns. And so, you know, pretty understandably, he starts to run away to go get the police. And uh, Brown's raiders shoot him in the back and he's injured. Um, all the people there, like in Harper Surrey, know him. And so they like save him and, and um, bring him to the station house to try to get him medical treatment, but sadly he died. And so, yeah, that's, you know, a little unexpected. The first guy did this anti-slavery radical kill in his raid was a free black man. He was running because to get the cops. And then uh, 
There's the mayor of Harper's Ferry who was also killed by one of Brown's snipers. And the mayor of Harper's Ferry was well known for his generosity towards the town's black community. He was like, I think he would, uh, he ran like a school and would go to people's houses to, to help them out and was just like really well regarded by pretty much everyone. And so, yeah, like Harper's Ferry, like, you know, I think Brown probably just had no idea what life in the South was actually like, but I'm sure that it made a huge impact on Southerners because there was obviously this very bloody slave result revolt that almost happened, or at least, you know, it wouldn't seem like it was almost, like it almost happened, like 20 people with guns show up and, and seize the federal armory. And where is that happening? Is it happening in like some fed of nightmarish plantation where all the slaves are getting whipped to death? No, it's happening in an area where slavery is being peacefully phased out and relations are, are probably the best that they were between like black people and white people. And so, you know, that's obviously not going to de-escalate things. In fact, it's going to escalate things quite a lot. And the book lays out how it, it kind of tapped into the South's biggest fear, which is a, a bloody slave slave uprising that doesn't spare anyone. So it gives kind of a, and this is the meat of the book, actually. And if you're looking for just like the guy's thesis or like him riffing on stuff, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, he gives basically a history of both the abolition movement and the institution of slavery to kind of sketch out why these two memes, you know, the, the kind of New England strain of abolitionism, which was uh, just like personally insulting to Southerners, and uh, the South's fear of a slaver's revolt. So you can see how these, these ideas took hold and eventually moved people into this like really horrible conflict that could have been avoided. So John Brown's raid, he bought, brought lots of pikes, right, and, and like pike heads because he said that slaves wouldn't know how to, to own guns, but, you know, you can use a pike pretty easily with minimal training. And, you know, it's, it's pretty gory to think about someone getting killed with a pike. And it was gory back then when everyone had guns. And uh, the pipe heads actually got sent around. There was some guy who was pro-secession who had actually mailed them to governors. And he's like, hey, they wouldn't use these pikes on your kids. This is what the northern abolitionists have planned for you. And that fear of a massive slaver's revolt stretches back to the, to the beginning of the institution of slavery in the U.S. And it sketches out how the institution of slavery developed. It's something that even early on, people like George Washington understood was going to be a problem eventually, right? Like black people outnumbered white people in some areas of the South. But it's one of those things that became kind of unsolvable because for starters, it's making people a ton of money. And that, you know, the book dispels a lot of the economic myths about the South, right? Personal wealth in the South was like three times what it was in the North, right? People were much wealthier. But he's it's, it's making people lots of money, but also like... Once this found that things happened between groups, right? One group has enslaved another. Like, how are the two groups going to live together with each other normally afterwards? And the kind of touchstone event for this in the, the Southern mind was the revolution in, in Santo Domingo, which became Haiti. And this is something, you know, Thomas Jefferson was someone who also, a Southerner who owned slaves, who also thought like slavery needed to go. It's going to be a really bad long-term problem. And this kind of cemented in his view when the Santo Domingo slave uprising happened. And in order to have it familiar with the period, basically there were kind of two rebellions. The first one, a little bit more moderate. It wasn't just about, oh, you know, killing all white people. And there was kind of, you know, that happened to, to some extent. 
Um, and one of the generals who would later do that had a major role. Um, but basically, that first rebellion happens. The leader of it is kidnapped by the French, and he is just arrested and, and thrown in jail. and be treated like he's a uh, regular criminal. And then this other former slave, then he starts massacring all the white people. He kills them in really cruel, in really cruel ways. The people who had nothing to do with slavery and people who even supported the initial revolution against the French crown. All those white people, you know, they didn't really discriminate. They would just like rob and murder them. And you, it was like, you know, pretty much every white person on, on Haiti had either had to flee or was, you know, horrifically killed in public. And Thomas Jefferson, the second round for him, because he felt like he boxed the situation because he was president at the time. And he knows that this slave uprising is happening in Haiti. And the French government contacts him and they're like, we know we sleep, we freed all the slaves by decree, but we're planning to reinstitute slavery on the island. And Thomas Jefferson kind of gives his assent to this. And after that plan to reinstitute slavery on the island wakes, then the total blanket massacres of white people began. So Jefferson felt like personally responsible for the massacres, and it really informed his thinking on the institution of slavery. And so he came to view it. Um, as I think a lot of intelligent Southerners viewed it as like something that he kind of inherited. And it's like, I think the term he used was like, you have a wolf by the ears and you know that you probably shouldn't, you know, have a wolf by the ears, but you also can't really let it go because then it's going to attack you. And so slave uprisings often had this kind of apocalyptic character. And they're like, well, if we let all these people go, they're going to kill us immediately afterwards because there, there's tons of bad blood. So a good example of this is, um, I think his name was Vassy Denmark, and he was a slave in Charleston. He was like an artisan, maybe a perpendicular. And he played the lottery. And this this is one of the things, like, you know, the modern, you know, the modern understanding of slavery is like everyone is out on this hellish plantation and there's this crazy guy whipping them nonstop. But like in many areas, like slaves have a lot of autonomy. There are people who are artisans and, and basically they just had to kick their owner back, you know, percentage of their income. But otherwise they, they lived like a free person did. And so this um, Vassy Denmark guy, he wins the lottery. He buys his own freedom and he opens up a church. And um, I think his own business is he was pretty wealthy. He was, you know, obviously a pretty intelligent guy. And he starts plotting a huge slave uprising after the Haitian Revolution happens. And, you know, the, the Haitian Revolution, the reason Tom Jefferson opposes it, he's like, well, if, if slaves do any kind of uprising, they're going to be inspired to do uprisings in the United States. And, you know, the president of Haiti advised American slaves to rise up and come to Haiti. And so that's what this vastly Denmark guy was going to do is uh, he... I think it was like several thousand slaves that he contacted and they were all going to seize guns in Charleston and then kill all the white people that they encountered and then steal ships and go to Haiti. And he actually, you know, phrased it as like, don't let it, you know, don't allow any light, light skins that you encounter to live because this is what they did in Haiti. And like that, that's something I think that came out of his trial. So like you're obviously planning to like just massacre like all civilians that they encountered. And, uh, you know, two of the slaves, they didn't want to kill all these people. And so they ended up revealing the plan to the local authorities and, and it was broken out and the ringleaders were killed. I and mean, actually, as an aside, if you want to know just how bad the like non-Trump GOP was, there is actually a statue of that guy who was arrested for planning to kill all the white people he encountered in, Char in the city of Charleston right now.
right? Like they, they uh, if you look at his Wikipedia cases, leave out the fact that he claimed to like kill all white people. And yeah, there's a statue of him that was built in, in uh, either 2013 or 2015. Well, when Nikki Haley was governor, and so it's like, yeah, that's that's what um, you know the the non-Trump GOP allowed to happen. And they just, you know, people like made up these stuff about guys who are pretty horrible, and, and they'll just be like, okay, like yeah, that that, that seems okay. Just fill the statue of the 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 like proposed like the guy who's like playing to, to massacre people that's okay with us I, I can't see that creating any problems in the future actually the the church that um uh, Vassy Denmark founded was the one that Dylan Roof shot out. So it's just all sorts of like nasty, there's in black blood that goes back, you know, hundreds of years. And so, yeah, this is a, a, a tense situation. It's tough to resolve tense situations without bloodshed, that it's, you know, it's kind of a lost heart, but it's one that people really should rediscover now. So Thomas Jefferson and other Southerners, they realize that slavery is kind of unsustainable, but they don't all want to die. They don't want these horrible bloody massacres. Like Nat Turner's Rebellion happened like 10 years later. And Nat Turner's Rebellion, it was a successful slave uprising. I think it was maybe at the high point, it was like 100 slaves like rose up and they would just go to random people's, white people's houses and like, you know, kill them. They killed women and children. I think um, it was like 50 or so innocent people who were just like brutally butchered by these rebelling slaves before the uh, military took them out. And so, you know, the South is really concerned about slave uprisings, not entirely unreasonably, but... It seems like the natural way to uh, prevent slave uprisings is just not to have slavery. And that is the conclusion that many Southerners, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and, and lots of waiter people reach. But they don't really know how to end it because the whole economy is dependent on slavery, right? It's, it's making a bunch of people very wealthy. So, you know, if, if it's making you wealthy, you don't necessarily want to end it. You'll find all sorts of excuses not to end something that's making you rich. But also, like, what are you going to do with the slaves once they're free, right? Because people kind of concluded that there's going to be perpetual tension. Like, you're not just going to forget that someone used to enslave you overnight. And so, like, they don't want that have ongoing tense situation. And the experience with Jamaica soured people on, um, you know, the kind of economic prospects of, like, things resuming once slave and reservers. So, British Empire peacefully ended slavery. I think the, the British paid, like, the equivalent of, like, $700 billion and just bought every single slave in the British Empire and let them go. And that totally worked. And there were not these, like, bloody massacres and, um, it like successfully into slavery. It's called compensated emancipation. That was the term that, that uh, was used at the time. And that was you know, definitely the best option to peacefully resolve slavery. But once slavery was ended, Jamaica, which used to be, I think, one of the wealthiest places on the planet, became this total economic backwater. Read the slaves, understandably, once they were free, didn't want to keep working on their plantations and their old jobs and, and just kind of return to subsistence agriculture you, you won't have a lot, but you're not doing what you were doing when someone literally owned you. And so it's understandable why they did that, but also like the real estate on Jamaica, like the, the price of it dropped to like 120th or something like that of what it used to be. So it's like a total economic collapse. And the white population of Jamaica just totally disappeared. They weren't killed like they were on Haiti, but they just moved away because like the, the entire island's economy collapsed. And so Southerners, they don't want their entire economy to collapse. 
And especially in the areas where blacks have number of whites, the South was like really wealthy. And so it's tough to convince people to like magnanimously turn themselves into a complete economic backwater, just like you decline into nothing, which is what it would seem like it would, it would seem like that would happen if you ended slavery, you know, if, there, if they were just massacred, which also have happened in other places where slavery ended. So it's, it's a rock and a hard place. The obvious solution is ending slavery. The trick is doing it in a way that like won't blow everything up. And as the slave population increases and the institution gets more firmly entrenched, it becomes harder and harder to do, even though gradually pretty much everyone understands that like it needed to go and it was just like no way to live. Like I, the, uh, the book goes into details about slave patrols and how those operated. And it's like after the slave rebellions, they would have nightly patrols of people to kind of see what the slaves were doing and make sure that people weren't traveling without their master's permission or like meeting in large groups because they were worried about the prospect of an organized slave revolt. And it's like if you had to constantly mobilize like 25% of like all white men in the city to just make sure that the blacks aren't like plotting to kill you like maybe there's something else that you need to change about society right like slavery it, it should have been phased out they're they're developing all these complicated ways to like deal with the symptoms uh created by this issue oh and they they probably should have bit the bullet and uh, just gotten rid of the issue entirely or at least phased it out but and again this is you know the the, the delicate art of reaching a compromise even talking about doing something about slavery um, risked causing more slave rebellions, right? If people know that slavery is going to end in, what, 10 years, why would you work, right? Like, why would you work for someone if you know you're going to be like them no matter what in 10 years? I mean, so they're, they're worried about just this ongoing discussions creating issues or maybe, like, motivating violence, right? Like, kind of free, it's a ticking clock. I have a, an episode coming out of, um, for paid subscribers only, like, if you're a free subscriber, I hate you, and I, I think you really should subscribe to get access to the paid exclusive episodes. But I have um, an episode coming up about the movie The Outpost, which is about the Battle of Kamdish in Afghanistan. And basically, there's like a military base in Afghanistan, a U.S. Army base, and it's in kind of hostile territory. And they knew the position is a bad position, and so they're going to pull out. But the problem is that the word leaks out that they're pulling out, and they take that moment uh, when the Americans were weakest to attack. And so it was very effective because they were like slowly pulling out resources from that base. And so they, they weren't ready to deal with this huge major Taliban attack. And the institution of slavery kind of like that, right? Like weird stuff happens in the final days of the thing. You know, the final days of a war are often the bloodiest. And so the Southerners, like they know that it has to go. The public becomes pretty hostile to even discussing it. They want it to just disappear overnight. And uh, the book says that, like, the yeah, book suggests that probably it disappearing overnight and, you know, someone like a Southern leader unilaterally ending it and doing what compensated, compensated emancipation. Like, I'm sure it would have created some disruptions, but that would have solved a lot of problems. But anyway, no one's willing to do that. The plan the Southerners come to is they're going to expand the, the institution of slavery so much that the black population is like diffused around. And so the risks of a bloody slave rebellion become minimized. But in order to expand the institution of slavery around, they basically have to restructure their entire national political system around expanding the institution of slavery, which creates the, the other meme that uh, kind of took hold before the Civil War which is the humiliation and inferiority complex of the North, and particularly people in New England and Massachusetts.
And this is, you know, a great thank you. You'll feel like you're just getting a proper history lesson in this book, but it like sketches out racial tension, tensions in America, like a hundred years before the Civil War. And so New England, some of the oldest colonies in the U.S., and they used to be some of the, the wealthiest and most populated. After the um, American Revolution, there was all this kind of this jockeying between the North and the South. But as the country grew, it grew more and more dominated by the South. And so, you know, as, as things are expanding to the West, you have a, a lot of people in kind of rural areas in the South. And they were much more likely to move somewhere else than people who were, uh, you know, populations that were more urban or had small farms and like kind of had more attachments to the land, like what was going on in the North. So, you know, there kind of like three factions emerged. There's the North, the South, and then there's the West. And the West was mainly populated by Southerners and it was more Southern culturally. And so... Oftentimes, the, the South had what seemed like total political domination because the West, West would kind of do whatever the South did. And the South also became much wealthier as new technology like the cotton gin and textile mills came into being and cotton and other kind of cash drops became much more valuable. So the South is getting rich. It's politically dominating the United States. And oftentimes... The interests of the North and the South diverged even before the Civil War. So, like, during the War of 1812, which was an understandable war, right, the, the British were waging, like, unrestricted warfare on the American merchant fleet. America has to respond. And the problem is that launching a war against England totally devastated the economy of New England and Massachusetts and all these other places that maintain enormous amount of trade with, you know, both Great Britain and Canada and, and other places that, you know, were, were a lot closer to them and a lot more tied into the global trade network. So James Madison was president then. And to understand why it was a war, but it, it totally destroys their economy. Like we described the economic devastation that like an embargo against Free Britain caused. It was really bad. And so New England's getting screwed in this. And then the war starts not going well, right? The, the invasion of Canada was a complete disaster. They're losing all sorts of battles all over the place. And New England starts refusing to send troops that it's legally required to send to contribute to the war. And then once the things really turn south for the U.S. in the War of 1812, they start talking about seceding. And these were like, I think it's like the Hartford Convact, and they were really close to seceding. And... England, of course, loves this because America is such a big rival to them that they actually in their blockade of New England. And so even though it's illegal to trade with England, that trade is about to continue uninterrupted. And so like the economic devastation is getting lifted. Is it getting lifted by your friends, your your countrymen, the Southerners? No, it's your enemies, the English, who are, are really helping you out. And so there were serious talk for New England to secede. And then kind of miraculously, a peace agreement is negotiated and and so that's great. And then the Battle of New Orleans happens and, you know, Andrew Jackson wins this just absolutely decisive victory over the British invasion fleet. And everyone who talked about seceding in New England, which is a lot of their political establishment, gets fired as traitors and they're all disgraced. And so the uh, New England states are, are very politically disorganized for decades. While the South is very politically organized, as a result, kind of dominates the place on top of getting richer, on top of having more territory. And so New England emerges as this kind of hard case 
I want to say kind of isolationist region where like they'll oppose things like the Louisiana Purchase and later the Mexican-American War, like the acquisition of Texas and California and all this new territory that's like good for the country. It's objectively good for the country. But a small but very vocal block of New Englanders begin basically opposing anything that they think will help the South. And so this is annoying and people kind of recognize that it's annoying. But it's kicked into overdrive when the abolitionist movement gains widespread acceptance. And the book lays out how the abolitionist movement, you know, it existed before this was the case. And it was mainly on religious grounds. But the abolitionist movement basically became a vehicle for people to express their regional tensions and their hatred of the South, uh, especially in New England. And... Uh, they basically developed this entire red conspiracy. It was called the slave power. And the idea was that there was some secret plot among Southerners to expand slavery in perpetuity just for the sake of expanding slavery. And really, they wanted to conquer and dominate the New England states. And I guess it's like kind of true, like slavery was expanding. People felt the need to expand slavery. New Englanders didn't really factor into that that much. Was, like they were pretty clear that they were trying to prevent slave revolts. And you know, they, the issues of slavery was kind of a difficult beast to wrangle. It was a very difficult problem to resolve. But anyway, there's an elaborate conspiracy theory that developed around this. It was very popular in New England. It's called slave power. And then, and I'm sure, you know, I live in New England now and I grew up in New England and I'm sure you've encountered people like this where once they get into your head and you're a bad guy, it's a kind of Puritan mindset, they're just going to attack you relentlessly and they're going to make up stuff about you and they're never going to drop it. And they won't even realize why they're angry or what they're doing. The abolitionist movement uh, became a very rabble-rousing thing that was, I think the expression was, uh, they had more hatred for the white Southerner than they, than they had love for the Negro, but it was mainly based around like insulting Southerners in the South. And this initially was very unpopular in the North because, you know, people understood the need for, for national unity. And so, like, abolitionists would get attacked on the streets in the North because they're like, you know, hey, you know, like, like my relatives are in the South, you can't say that. Or like, hey, what are you doing, man? You're going to embarrass us. But as New England's political humiliation mounted, the abolition movement became a kind of rallying cry and like political organizing center and a source of like regional pride and feelings of superiority, right? They think they're morally superior to all the Southerners down South. And, you know, these evil people down South, they've gotten rich and politically powerful off of doing this bad thing, but we're better than them. Like we, you know, we, we pursued a, a higher path. So gradually people became more and more open to that sort of thing. And then people just lost all compunction about like lying and slandering people. And so there were all sorts of weird things that would spread around about the institution of slavery. And there, there, you know, I'm sure there were tons of horror shows, but like they would, you know, regularly write that like everyone in the South like raped their slaves. And like the, there was like an economy based on like raping slaves. And that, you know, definitely wasn't true. And, and relations between slaves and, and white people were actually extremely rare. The, the Fleming actually uses population survey numbers to kind of sketch out that like the rumors that, that like everyone is having 
having sex with their slaves all the time. Was, we're, we're definitely not really backed up by anything. And like, I think the average age that the black woman had a child was like 22 or something like that. You know, there were slave marriages. It was more like sex sells. And if you can add a sex element to a story, it makes it that much more scandalous. And yes, yeah, so they would do that stuff all the time. And often in, in lives that were spread by abolitionists, there were, were things of a sexual nature, which people in the South understandably felt very offended by and they, they wouldn't drop it. And then gradually the the North began to just not comply with anything that was connected to the institution of slavery. It's understandable why some have moral objections to slavery, but like it's like people are like openly flaunting the law. And so the South would be like, you have to obey the law. And the steps that it, it took to compel the North to obey the law further exacerbated their humiliation. So like the fugitive slave law, always unpopular, people found religious objections for the institution of slavery, but like it became this huge ordeal to to actually enact it. And the existence of the, the fugitive slave law and the infrastructure to maintain that was probably worse for the institution of slavery long-term than like not having it because it totally kicked their humiliate the Northerners' humiliation into overdrive. So they're politically dominated by the South. But they can defy, like, judges will find some way to block the slave being Matron. And so there's this one big case where, like, a slave escapes, he's arrested, and there's this huge poor case over it, and the federal government intervenes, and riders storm the courthouse, and they, like, stab federal marshals because they're like, you know, these, these Southerners are coming in to impose their rule on us. And so the government actually sends in hundreds of troops, and they basically line the streets, and it's like the North is under military occupation. And then they escort the slave out back to a ship, you know, back down south. And I think it was maybe Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the big New England writers, said that he was kind of like impassive on the slavery issue before that, right? He didn't really like slavery, but he wasn't really that, you know, passionate about the issue. But he became a diehard of abolitionists after that because it became clear to him that slavery was a, a source of like humiliation for the North, right? But outsiders can come in and they can impose their will on you. And if you elect it too bad, we can send hundreds of troops to your location. And so tensions are ramping up. People don't necessarily know why it's good to avoid these big confrontations because they just, you know, hey, solved your problem. You can, you can send that slave back down south. But now public sentiment for the radical abolition movement gets substantially accelerated and it allows people to politically organize. And as the radical abolition movement gains power and you have all these people who are like liars and it's based on like resentment of the South, like pretty, pretty openly, compromise becomes that much harder to do, right? Compromise seems like you're cucking people will prior you for trying to compromise. So like something like compensated emancipation, that's what most people did to peacefully resolve slavery. And that just became totally out of the question, right? People wanted the slaves free now. It's a moral issue. It's a religious issue. You know, how can you say these people are property? You, you can't pay for a person and you shouldn't reward someone for, for owning another person's slavery. So compensated emancipation, it was obviously the best option, but that gets taken off the table immediately. No one would ever agree then. And realistically, that'd be quite a lot of money, right? I think it, it took Great Britain like maybe 70 years to pay off the debt that it undertook to, to free all the slaves. So that would have required a lot of heavy lifting. And as both sides become more inflexible, that, that just becomes impossible. And 
And other kind of compromise solutions that people come up with are also, you know, become greeted with hostility. And so like um, the colonization option, like Liberia, that got a lot of funding. Uh, some Southerners supported that because they're like, well, you know, the big problem isn't necessarily ending slavery. Like that'll be an issue. But the, the real problem would be like, well, what are we going to do with all these people afterwards? And so sending them back to Africa seems like a good option. But abolitionists started violently opposing it because it was something other than like treating men as totally equal people. And, you know, they're, they're just as American as you and me. And like, how can you, how can you propose sending these victim people back to the, the horrors of Africa? I will say it was unpopular even with blacks. I think there was, uh, I'll give you an example of one Southerner who offered to free his slaves if they would just go to Liberia and the slaves refused, right? They don't want to go back to Africa that, you know, slavery was not this unending horseshoe nightmare. And like American slaves probably had very relatively high quality of life compared to slaves pretty much anywhere else on the planet. Like it was, it was one of the, I guess, least brutal implementations of the institution of slavery maybe in history. And so they didn't want to go back to Africa. You don't know anyone there and be really hard spread a light. And so understandably, they want to say, but that compromise option, that's out the window too. And so no one can really make it work. And they all know it's a big issue, but tensions keep getting ramped up by the rhetoric of New England. And, you know, the guys are just like, you know, it's, it's, just insulting when Goldman is like huge mold tracks and stuff won't even be true. I know there was the uh, congressional cane assault. And you know, I think what people thought like, oh, those like far core, I think it's dumb. I think the, um, there was, I think he's a Republican congressman from Oklahoma. And he like threatened to beat up this union guy who insulted him in, in the hearing chamber, if you will, like, oh yeah, that's badass. The moment I saw that, I knew that that congressman was going to be shitty on some issue that like is important. And it turns out that he was like one of the anti-Trump guys who was like, they should have opened fire on the crowd on January 6th or something like that. So you get these like big guys full of bluster and they're like, uh, I'll all and kick your ass on the Senate floor. And it's like, you're like, don't act like street trash. Like it's always like compensating for something. Like he can tell some of them he's doing that as like kind of an idiot. Though the, 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 the um, I think it was Troll Sunder, the cane assault on him, basically this uh, rabbit abolitionist and uh, there was this old southern virus man I, I can't remember his name he was like a, he was an old guy like very distinguished gentleman and it's they're talking about the state of slavery in missouri and the southern congressman makes like a purely legal argument about how like yeah it's constitutional we have the legal right to expand it here you can't interfere with that Sumner, uh, he's this rabid abolitionist, and he just goes straight to personal attacks. So he gives this huge speech about how it's like the Southern congressman is raiding someone, which that was the common motif that they would all do. It's like, oh, yeah, everyone in the South has sex with their slaves, and then there are these like, horrible people who like, you know, they have sex with their own children. It's a really insulting stuff. And the Southern congressman had these speech impediments, you know, with like kind of stutter sometimes. And, you know, he's this distinguished guy. Like, no one thinks he's dumb or anything like that. But the the abolitionist congressman starts making fun of the speech impediment. And, you know, there's a whole speech about what, a, what an idiot the old Southern congressman is. And then he starts imitating the speech impediment. And so it's like really personally insulting stuff on the, on the floor of Congress. And so a few days later, the congressman's nephew, who is, is also a congressman, goes up to the abolitionist and just beats the shit out of him. And I think he like fribbled him or something like that. And it's like, was understandable why you would beat the shit out of someone if you like made fun of your nice old handicapped uncle. But it also made the situation that much worse. 
and um, you know, it kind of confirmed the abolitionists, the, you know, boy, another humiliation for the abolitionists, right? Not only are they losing all these things, uh, but they're actually getting physically attacked by these barbarian, evil Southerners. And what really is like, you know, I think that people need to take their roles in, in leadership very seriously. But like, it's pretty understandable if you're going to let all these personal attacks and so on, like eventually it's going to end in violence. And so really to avoid that, you need to like, avoid personally attacking someone like that. And it's just like one of those things where like abolitionists made normal life kind of impossible, right? They would shut down Congress. They would flood Congress with like thousands, millions of petitions about slavery. And they would talk about slavery all the time. And they know that the bill would, you know, have no chance of passage, but they'd file it 50 times and everyone would have to discuss it and formally vote it down. And it just became this huge issue. And they, they instituted Gadget Rule because it's so annoying. Like Congress has a job to do. It has other responsibilities other than slavery. And then they start having this big constitutional debate about, about the legality of the gag rule. And it's, it's um, you know, really does seem like a disease of the public mind. Like it's a fixation. They're not in the realm of policy, they're in the realm of like social hysteria. And it's like, you know, being vindictive towards other people, like nothing is trying to be accomplished other than like being mean to people you don't like. And that's like a disease, right? Negative feelings are a disease. And like all these guys had like serious responsibilities, right? They were legislators, but they couldn't get it together because there is this enormous atmosphere of hostility generated by radical abolitionists and like everyone hated abolitionists. And this hatred of abolitionists for like kind of paralyzing the national discussion and the national debate. I was caged in overdrive by John Brown. So John Brown, who's like literally a terrorist, like he murdered five unarmed people in Kansas and that kicked off bleeding Kansas, the crisis where like 150 people died. So he's like this crazy person. He's, he's having his henchmen like cut people into little pieces like, you, you know, a serial killer. And he's allowed to travel openly in the North and he's like a celebrity. And people would interfere with federal marshals trying to arrest him. So, like, not only do, do people in the South think, like, hey, like, you know, these guys are, are nuts, but also, like, these guys are going to kill us and they'll help people who are going to kill us. And then John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry happens. And, like, they take over a schoolhouse, right? They're worried that there's going to be this huge slave rebellion. And it is treated as a source of regional pride in the North. And everyone views this, like, you know, abolitionists. Initially, people kind of condemned it because it was so obviously crazy. But then Harriman started defending it all once, like big people. And I think Ralph Walter Emerson said that Jesus Christ was a dead failure compared to John Brown. And so John Brown... He's this insane murderer, but all of these major figures in the North are cheering him on and celebrating him. And it's, it's not a small number of people. It's like a lot of people, and they're really important. And Brown's raid was enabled by millions of dollars given to him by wealthy Northern backers. And, and they got their hands on John Brown's letters uh, to these backers. And so they had proof that these guys, you know, gave him the money. And when they were all arrested— uh, being, you know, they had this lawyer who later became the governor of Massachusetts who helped them escape arrest. And so no one was punished for it. And it seems like everyone thought it was a good thing what they did. And people just lied about what happened incessantly. So like Brown, his like final speech, um, he basically totally misrepresents his plans. He said like he wasn't even planning a slave uprising. He was planning to like peacefully march people up north, which is just a complete lie. And 
people reprint the final speech like it was objective fact in the newspaper. And they're like, oh, these evil Southerners have, have murdered this totally innocent person who's really like Jesus Christ. And so people in the South began to think that people in the North were just kind of crazy. And Levine KJ had a word it was a disease of the public mind. And it was like a, a regional source of pride um, this this person, John Brown, had struck fear into the Southerners, where the Southerners are all taught, and just one peaceful man was able to scare them so much, and it took them like two weeks or whatever to respond to him. And it was just like, like there were like lies, but they were like really mean-spirited lies, and there were lies about like pretty deranged stuff, right? Just like crazy terrorists. And it created this uh, just totally noxious atmosphere that kind of made uh, normal discourse impossible, right? Uh, no one wants compromise anymore. Like compromise, uh, if you the Southerners think that compromise is going to get them all killed. And the Northerners think that compromise is some kind of very morally objectionable, like on spiritual grounds thing. Any kind of compromise with these slavers is contributing to the great evil of slavery. And so like no one wants to get anything done. And eventually, as real world violence creeps into it, this kind of other social contagion, the idea that you can only resolve your issues through some huge bloodletting also takes a wheel. So like the cane assault, it was understandable why he beat that guy up. And he even beat him up pretty badly. Like the guy was saying really insulting stuff. But violence should not be anywhere near a, a legislature. Like, a legislature is a really important thing. Legislators have very, you know, important responsibilities to, like, civilization. And so after the came to solve, all congressmen started carrying guns with them everywhere. And it's like there's this giant armed standoff in the halls of Congress. And that's, like, totally, you know, that's totally unsustainable. You should not be conducting these, like, tense negotiations at gunpoint. People get pretty heated when they discuss legislation. And, uh, yeah, you shouldn't have the implied threat that, like, maybe I'll just pull out a gun and cheat you if, uh, if you, like, really piss me off enough. And these arm camps are building, and these arm camps uh, start building in real life. So it, the South, very understandably, after John Brown's raid, right, it's this well-funking terrorist attack deep in Southern territory. I didn't have the potential, at least, to kill a lot of people. So they overhaul their militia system, and every state overhauls its militia system. And the South has all sorts of military veterans from the Mexican-American War, right, the Southern military aristocracy. They're an important part of the U.S. military for centuries. And if you overhaul your militia system, eventually you just have a modern military. And when the South had a modern military at its disposal, just having that tool makes people want to use it. And it, it generates hostility towards people who, like, don't want to use it, right? Like, are you a coward? Are you too afraid to defend yourself? And so it's like a train virling towards the edge of a cliff. And, you know, so many people saw that disaster was on the horizon, but no one uh, or very few people were willing to kind of pull the brakes on the train, right? It seems like everyone's acting so reasonably. You know, they did this bad thing to us. We're going to do this bad thing to them, right? Like even, you know, if you have the Northerners, like, hey, someone just beat the living shit out of one of their congressmen, nominally over debate over slavery. That's not sustainable for people to just like beat you up and like cripple you when you're having a discussion in the legislature, no matter what you're saying. And so, yeah, so he's going to reasonable. They started tearing guns. So it's like people are, are escalating. 
And it's like the natural path they're taking, right? It's like water flowing down a hill and it's following the path of least resistance. And in Salon, the path of most resistance was like reaching a compromise. But plenty of people tried and they made good faith efforts to do so. But the abolitionists created this unsustainable atmosphere and no one wanted to work with each other anymore. And uh, going beyond the abolitionists, like you see this recurring thing where people don't get the need to behave magnanimously and kind of take, you know, take the L a little bit. Like it's okay to take some one or two L's, you know, as long as you get the big cosmic win. So there's a fixation on like rubbing the other person's nose in it. So the, the fugitive slave thing in Boston, where it's like, it seems like Boston's under military occupation to enforce the institution of slavery. And that like caused everyone in Boston to become totally deranged because of it, they were humiliated. And then later on, with the secession crisis is in like full year, this doesn't get a lot of attention, but secession was actually really unpopular in the most important Southern states. So like Virginia, which had most of the South's industry and was the wealthiest Southern state, I mean, kind of was like, had like a leadership role. Virginia, uh, the secession lost like four times in a row. Like it was like, it was like two to one against secession because everyone knew that secession was a dumb idea and the country would be better off together. But you know, like the secession crisis rolls around and secession's unpopular in all these really important southern states. And then Lincoln, and this was probably the greatest miscalculation in Lincoln's career, like, you know, I had complex feelings on Lincoln, but he really botched this. It, the secession crisis is rolling around. It's a legal crisis. Secession is fire on Fort Sumter. And that, you know, even though, like, there are cannons being shot, that was kind of a diplomatic crisis. Like, no one was trying to kill everyone, and it was really about reinforcing the fort, right? The union, a high-level union official said they were going to evacuate the fort. And then word way to reach the secession is that the union was actually going to greatly reinforce the fort. So they, they were convinced that the union was negotiating in bad faith and that if they didn't take action now, the situation would deteriorate rapidly for them. So it was still a diplomatic crisis. Like if you gave them advance notice that they were going to start firing so everyone can kind of get to safety. And I, I don't think anyone actually died during the bombardment. Some guy died in, in an accident after, like during the evacuation, but like that was not like an actual war. And Lincoln's response to this is to raise an army to stage a giant military invasion of the South. And he mandates the, the Southern states uh, contribute forces to this, which obviously they will not find acceptable. And so even the Southern states that opposed secession, I thought that basically a tyranny was being imposed and that these Northern abolitionists were going to start negotiating with everyone at gunpoint. And obviously they didn't want to contribute to that. So secession became a lot more popular because they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. So people want to rub each other's noses in it. They don't understand why it's important to de-escalate these conflicts and like not take the bait. And because of the noxious atmosphere created by the abolitionists, moderates and people who thought that secession was a bad idea uh, were kind of reluctant to step up because even though they were moderate, they needed they'd be tarred with the same views. So Robert E. Lee, Robert E. Lee was a hero during the Mexican-American War and was, was widely recognized as this like brilliant general. He's always outmaneuvering people. He's winning battles where he's greatly outnumbered. And he was praised. And just because he was a Southerner who was being praised, 
northern uh, abolitionist papers began to attack him. And, you know, they, they like, uh, they made up a story about how he was this feeble slave owner and that he stripped one of his female slaves naked and went her in public. And again, there's always this like sexualized element. And that was just completely made up. And it was, it was made up only because Robert E. Lee was a popular Southerner. Right. And that's what these abolitionists would do. It's like anyone who like they just hated white Southerners. And that was like obvious. And so it's like this totally artificial controversy has been created by Robert E. Lee. He's this proud, reserved guy. He doesn't want to enter into a public discourse about whether or not if he like strips women naked and whips them. Like he, he obviously doesn't do that. So he has this like ton of like lingering dislike of abolitionists. And then he actually commanded the forces, the U.S. Marines, who, re who responded to John Brown's raid. And so he has this background of abolitionists. And then he sees firsthand that, like, the, the abolitionists are actually, like, like terrorists. Like, they're, they're um, like, killing people. They're, they're staging these terrorist attacks. And so he sees this firsthand, and then he sees the reaction to it from, like, northern people, and they, like, worship the terrorists. And so, like, he understands secession is really dumb, but he has this um, very understandable dislike of the abolitionist movement. Uh, and he, he even, like, thought that slavery should have been phased out. So he's, like, a moderate on slavery, too. And he's, like, the ideal Southerner who could be brought into the fold, right? He's skeptical about secession. He's skeptical about slavery. But because of the abolitionists, they couldn't bring him back into the fold. And so he was asked to be the, the head of the Union Army, and he declined because even though he liked, really liked the Union and he would never want to raise a hand against the U.S. Army, uh, he wouldn't want to fight for these people that he thinks are totally crazy and have a realistic chance of invading his home. And so, again, like, the blame lies with the abolitionists for making the situation that was really tense absolutely impossible to resolve. And I think the, the book does a really good job exploring the kind of what-ifs. And there, there are multiple forks in the road where, like, people could have avoided the disaster of the American Civil War, right? The country's gravely weakened. These are great people die. And uh, this is one of the turning points. Like, imagine if Lincoln hadn't taken the bait after uh, Fort Sumter and hadn't called up a giant military invasion of the South and instead had tried to bring the border states and, and people like Robert E. Lee into the fold in a way that would be acceptable to everyone. Like, you know, people had dealt with Southern states talking about secession in the past. I think it was Andrew Jackson and maybe President Tyler. You know, the South threatened to secede then, and both of those guys were really tough. And they're like, yeah, you do, if you try that, you know, that's illegal. Uh, hey, we're going to come down and we're going to arrest you for breaking the law. But Lincoln was, you know, not in a, the same position President Jackson was. He did, wasn't someone who had a lot of buy-in from the country or the military. And in fact, because he was tied to the abolitionists, the radical abolitionists, like Lincoln was actually pretty moderate on the issue, um, no one trusted them. And so he couldn't display strength in the way that those previous presence in that, that made the, the problem that much worse. And yeah, so uh, if this is, this is the ultimate tragedy is like, you know, the North 
um, kind of engineered this conflict where they debated the South into seceding. It was a disastrous thing. Like all these abolitionists, you were basically begging the South to secede. So the vision invade the South and kill them all. But then the military that they were going to use to stop them from seceding didn't even exist. So it kind of tricked the South into thinking that they had a chance at winning the military conflict, which, you know, I, I might get black for this. I don't think they ever did. I don't think the South ever stood a chance. I think it was, it was naive to think that they could have possibly worked out secession in the way that they planned it, where it's like they're going to peacefully secede from the Union. Um, and there's no way the North, um, you know, the Northerners, they're all these these pussies. It's fully, you know, plowshed territory. There's no way they can respond to that. No, I, I don't think that there was ever any chance of that. Like, they should have known. And people didn't know. I think Robert E. Lee didn't know that it was going to be a huge disaster for the South, and he just couldn't bring himself to abandon Virginia, you know, his home. So, yeah, it's, it's like the tragedy. It's like the abolitionists make all these threats. They can't back them up. And because they can't even back them up, uh, the secession crisis, which, you know, should have lasted like a month, became this horrible four-year-long bloody war. And I move recount uh, the book even further. I know most people are probably not going to read the book. Like, you've just, you know, listened to this episode and think there's enough. But you really should read the book. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm actually begging you to because I missed a lot of things. It's not a long book, but it's absolutely packed full of important information and lessons that are just very relevant to today because our country today is faced with a lot of problems that seem unresolvable. And a lot of the problems are, caused by these people who are acting in total bad faith. And I think that conservatives are really letting themselves get backed into or steered into a no-win situation where they're confronted with these people. They're obviously these really nasty guys who will lie about literally everything. They'll lie about this really depraved stuff. Like, you know, after the, the Nashville church shooting, liberal activists were in the Tennessee State House claiming that the, the, the trans person who shot all those little kids because they were white uh, was a victim too. And so these people are absolutely deranged, and it's understandable why people feel compelled to react to them. But I think that, especially today, people are getting baited into stuff that is just short-sighted, and the ultimate goal of like, the kind of really bad people in power right now is to kick the dog until it bites and then shoot it. And uh, you really got to not let your emotions steer the ship. And you've always got to think about, well, how can I resolve this conflict in a way that doesn't end in a huge disaster? And, you know, people talk about acceleration and how, like, crazy stuff happening is good. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, I think that in every period of acceleration, conservatives have lost out because they're not nearly as politically organized and politically united as the left is. So really what we need is kind of radical deceleration, and people need to stop instinctively reacting to these provocations and instead react in a much smarter way. So like I'm thinking about the Colorado Supreme Court decision to take Trump off the ballot in Colorado. And this is a situation where there is no basis in law for them to do this. It's like a transparently political decision. And it's one of those decisions that even liberals are condemning because it's so stupid. And it, it is so disruptive and just like unnecessarily provocative. It's going to get thrown out by the Supreme Court. And even if it didn't, 
did grown out by the Supreme Court, it would have no impact on the election anyway because Colorado, you know, used to be a swing state. Now it's, it's far left territory, and that's you know, the sad state in many states in this country. But conservatives are, are taking the bait, and they're allowing liberals to set the tone. And a bunch of conservative states are like, well, if you take— Trump off the ballot, we're going to take Biden off the ballot. And that's a a kind of understandable reaction, right? Like, you did this bad thing, we're going to do this bad thing too. And it's understandable, but it's it's really short-sighted because ultimately, uh, liberalists are saying, we don't want a normal election. And then conservatives are, are like, well, we don't want a normal election either. And the problem with that is that Trump will probably win a normal election. And so really, like, I think people are, even when they react to liberals, they're, they're letting liberals set the conversation and liberals uh, set the tone of debates. And I think the way you short circuit these situations is by, by conducting yourself to a really high standard. And yeah, I just, I think that people are kind of itchy for a fight. And oftentimes they're itchy for fights that they can't win, right? And then that's, that's always the problem is that people get baited into these conflicts and they might even do well initially. But when you look at the grand scale involved in like really big conflicts, they can't keep up and they'll, they'll lose a long war, just like the South did, right? The South, it wins this big military victory initially. Think, it seems like things are doing great for it. Uh, but long-term, it had no chance because they had no chance of, of real diplomatic recognition and they were in such a deficiency in industrial power and population. And as bad as the situation was in the, the years and the decades preceding the Civil War, uh, and this is why this book is so important, Fleming does a great job presenting what-if scenarios where people could have de-escalated the situation and just chose not to. And you understand why they did this. It's not always unreasonable why we didn't de-escalate, but their decision not to do this led to complete disaster. So like the sum, the, the summary beating, like it's understandable why this uh, guy wanted to beat the shit out of the ab- abolitionist congressman because the abolitionist congressman said things that were just totally unacceptable in a really formal setting. But there were plenty of there were plenty of people in the abolitionists' own political party who weren't abolitionists, or even if they were abolitionists, were uncomfortable with that breach of decorum. And like those are guys where you could have, you know, they could have passed a resolution, they could have done something that would have like really like you know censured him or, or could have even put him on trial, where they just made it clear that like no, it's not acceptable to disrupt Congress in this way. And instead, the guy did this very human reaction. He beat the share, this guy who insulted one of his loved ones. And what do you know? That, you know, that was satisfying. Initially, he was a big hero afterwards. People, like, literally sent him replacement canes because he broke his cane on the abolitionists. But it, it led to disaster because everyone started carrying guns in Congress, and it was just this totally unsalvageable situation. So it's like you have to, you know, people that need to know not to take the bait. And I think... You know, now, especially in right-wing politics, people rely so much on slogans and mantras. And oftentimes, like, they're good in gen, like, they're good in general, right? Like, it's, it, they're oftentimes good advice. Like, there's the friend-enemy distinction meme. And a lot of stuff is so vague that it can be applied to anything. Oftentimes, these are, like, thought-terminating cliches. And they're just an excuse to stop thinking about the full ramifications of your actions. And I just hope people remember that there's never a point where you can, like, turn off your brain and just kind of go through the motions. You always have to be actively engaging with the situations that you're dealing with because for every, 
you know, rule, there's an exception to the ruling. Like, you kind of have to go along with the universe. The universe is going to present you with unexpected stuff, and you have to be able to be sensitive to that and respond to it appropriately because there's not always going to be easy answers. So you really do have to always, like, think about what the best path forward is. And I, I think that now, like, people are, are kind of like, you know, it's it's very reflexive, right? It's like that, you know, that Republican congressman threatening to beat the shit out of that union guy in the middle of the congressional floor, like in the middle of my hearing, and the union guy was talking trash on Twitter. And no, even the union guy shouldn't be talking trash on Twitter, but the answer is to like refuse to talk to the union guy, like you know, not even have him invited to the hearing, rather than to, you know, lower the halls of Congress to like, you know, fights between street trash. And, uh, yeah, it's just like, you know, stop, you know, people need to like stop blindly reacting and like start taking a little bit more control of what they do. Right. Yeah. I got, um, pretty seriously injured. Um, I want to say a few years ago and it's, it's still around. Um, you know, yes, it's, it's a pretty serious injury. It's, you know, uh, constant pain and, you know, until you you get it addressed. I started doing yoga. I, I do yoga all the time now. I love yoga. Uh, there was a, a place by a late, it's like 10, 15 minutes away from my house, but it's closed for the winter. So I had to I drive maybe an hour into downtown Portland to go to yoga. Season, but it's like the best part of my week. And um, I strongly recommend all of you guys do yoga. It's, it's like a gift for your body, but it's also, I think like good lessons in life in general. This is going to be a little corny, but like the the great thing about, you know, weightlifting and, and um, that sort of thing is like you're becoming stronger by making more of yourself. And with yoga, you really make progress by kind of allowing parts of yourself and tension that you had to kind of fade away. So I'll, I'll always remember this moment. I was struggling to get into one of the balance postures. I, I've been struggling for months to, to get it just right. And you can kind of like force your way through it and, you know, you like force all your muscles into place. And my instructor told me to loosen uh, my big toe, like unclench, unclench your toes. And as soon as I unclenched my toes, everything fell into place perfectly. I, di- I didn't even know that I was clenching my toes. And it was just an unconscious reaction to assuming this like unfamiliar position. But it turned out that that tension w- was the obstacle. And like, guys, that's, that's what's true for a lot of, uh, a lot of life is like the, the tension, the anger, the reservations, like they're holding you back from like finding the, the, like where you need to be and i think like everyone likes anger anger is so cathartic and i think that people like blindly reacting because it provides that catharsis but ultimately like it it can serve as a, a really big obstacle and i think that like when we win it will be something that you know, it requires a lot of work, requires a lot of concentration, but it, it seems effortless. Like I think of that, uh, this is a great movie. It, it holds up, every watched it recently, uh, The Matrix, the 1999 movie. And, um, you know, it's not just about the Kevin Trans. Uh, but they, there's a great finale where Neo, he, he's like brought back to life by the love of his girlfriend. And he finally sees thing, everything as it truly is. And he has a fight scene with like the main bad guy, Hey Our Thing. And it's a kung fu scene, but like all of his motions seem so effortless, and he's just like impossibly fast and impossibly strong. And like, you know, when we win, guys, and well, I don't think it will be this like fit of anger. I think it will be something that like is very graceful. And the, the, you know, that's kind of at the core of the Trump phenomenon. You know, Trump 
people people like to mean him as uh, this like horrible dictator. It's like the cosmic revenge, and that's that's kind of true. Like there's an element of revenge to Trump, but he's also like a, a very forward-looking person, and he ultimately wants to build something beautiful. He wants he wants an optimistic future. It's future-oriented. He's not just letting the libs. Uh, decide where he's going to go. He's building this entirely new thing without them. And I, I think there's a mindset that everyone should adopt uh, going into the future is not letting these uh, resentments and, you know, these really bad actors control what you do. Because if you're reacting to them, ultimately they're controlling what you do and you really need to set your own path. So I hope that wasn't too for um yeah, I really do recommend you do yoga. It's helped me out an enormous amount. I'm, I'm still not, you know, it's one of those uh, pretty serious injuries, so it's, it's still not better, but it's, it's world's better than it was. So, yeah, that's all I've got on the book, A Disease of the Public Mind. I strongly recommend this book. It's one of the best books on the American Civil War that I've ever read, and it's got this kind of eternal, uh, very topical today um, advice in uh, yeah, I, I really hope you read it. Like, please buy it after you you listen to this. Uh, there's also a really good lecture that um, Fleming, the author, did on C-SPAN. If you just Google a disease of the public mind C-SPAN, you'll be able to find it pretty easily. Yes, yeah, so this is a free episode. I didn't want to make it free, but I, you know, read this book and I thought it was really important and I, I, I wanted to talk about it. And like, there's always the you count difference, like paid episodes. Uh, they're great. Lots of high quality stuff, but they only get a few hundred views and uh, free episodes will get thousands. I, I think that this is uh, something that people needed to be exposed to. So yeah, I really do hope you read the book and can kind of explore that topic further because like that's very important for the tumultuous years ahead. So um, yeah, this is a free episode. And if you're a free subscriber and you're listening to this for free, like I hate you, you're, you're fucking scum. And um, I, I take it as a personal affront to me, um, your laziness and duplicity. You're nothing like the paid subscribers who have these very complex and rich inner lives and are, are just these wonderful people. They're, they're all conventionally attractive and have sprung facial symmetry. And you'd never be like them because you're just the scum of the earth. Uh, however, you can always turn your life around. You know, this is a great lesson of uh, a disease of the public mind, but it's never too late to start making good decisions and to turn the situation around. And, and you can turn the situation around for yourself personally. Like, obviously, if you're a free subscriber, things are going kind of bad for you. But you can, you can, uh, improve your lot in life by uh, giving behind the paywall. It's only a near $5. You can just click the subscribe button below to modify your subscription. I really am grateful for all paid subscribers. So thank you guys for listening to this. There are either four or five uh, episodes in the hopper. Some are already being edited right now. And all of those are going to be paid exclusive. Like free subscribers, you deserve trash. You deserve less. Um, my ultimate goal is, is to give you guys nothing. I, I despise you. And paid subscribers, I want you to have all the wonderful things in the world. And uh, I'm going to try to try to do the best I can for you. Just put no effort into free content. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It's the longest one yet. And, uh, yeah, I am um, going through a civil working now. Uh, another good book that I read, there's another episode on that that you can, you can find the link below. But it's at War to the Knife, which is about bleeding Kansas. And it's, it's got one of those other, like, very divergent from the mainstream interpretation of the Civil War. But there's just so much propaganda relating to the period, especially now, that it's, it's really important that people on their own initiative go in and learn more about it because there really are so many revealing lessons. I'm, I'm going through Shelby Foote's The Civil War Narrative, which is another book that I'd strongly recommend to you. And it really is like the American Union, like it's this these titanic struggles 
between all these great men, and it, it's just a joy to read about and to learn about. So, yeah, that's all I've got for this week. Uh, thank you for listening.